Have you ever had these thoughts cross your mind before? I'm really confused about where that person stands with Jesus. I'm really confused on whether or not they truly know the Lord. This person professes to be a Christian, but the longer time goes by, the more I remain uncertain and even unsettled about their spiritual life. They claim to be walking with the Lord, but from my limited perspective, the Lord doesn't appear to be all that important in their life. That person could be your spouse you're married to. It could be your son or daughter. It could be your mom or dad, grandmother, grandfather. It could be a brother or sister, niece or nephew, a cousin or some other family member you really care about. These thoughts running across your mind could not only be someone in your family, but they could also be about someone at work or at school too. It could be your boss. It could be a business partner or a colleague you're working on a project with at work, a principal or teacher or administrator at your school, a student in your classroom, a lawyer in your firm, a doctor or nurse in your medical practice, perhaps a mom in your homeschool co-op group, or maybe a friend you've known most of your adult life. But this bewildering thought you have about someone's spiritual life might not just be family, friends, or someone at work. It could also be someone you see regularly at church. Or at least someone that you know attends church sometimes, somewhere. These deeply and concerning thoughts could actually be towards a fellow church member you know quite personally. It could even be towards a missionary you know or a deacon you know, or a Bible study leader you know, or sadly, it could even be a pastor you know. When considering the confusion that blankets our thoughts about someone's spiritual life, friends, who are the people that are coming to your mind this morning? Who in your life leads you confused about where they stand with Jesus? They say they know God. They say they serve the Lord. They say they love him and trust him. They might even say they gave their life to Jesus a long time ago. They prayed a prayer. They were even baptized once upon a time. But the overall pattern of their life, the overflow of their words from week to week conversation don't seem to be adding up. They don't seem to be squared away with what the Bible teaches what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. After watching their life and observing what they love and paying attention to the ongoing pattern of what they make time for, what they don't make time for, and who they make time for, you're left concerned. You might even be burdened. You might even be losing sleep over it at night. And what burdens you and I is this. Their profession of faith 
doesn't appear to be bearing any fruit of actually possessing true saving faith. However, sooner or later, this soul-disturbing experience usually finds its way towards how we view ourselves, doesn't it? We too have to look into the mirror of God's truth and the light of his word to shine into our own hearts. And as we approach this subject with our own souls, we must humbly ask the same type of questions, but about ourselves. Do I know Jesus Christ? Am I really a Christian? Is Jesus Lord and Savior of my life? Or am I self-deceived and I don't even know it? To these questions and more, we turn now to the next chapter in Mark's gospel. If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 496. Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that Bible and the chair back as a gift from our church to you, Mark 14. Last week in Mark chapter 13, we left off studying the longest teaching block found in Mark's gospel as Jesus taught on the Mount of Olives. Sitting with his disciples across from this beautiful and grandiose Jewish temple, he forewarned them about the coming destruction on the temple that was going to occur within a generation of these disciples' lives. And in light of the coming judgment on Jerusalem, Jesus also talked about another coming of judgment in his second coming that we are waiting upon as his church even today. Uh, Jesus exhorted his disciples in Mark 13, what is also taught really on repeat throughout the rest of the New Testament. Uh, What is that consistent teaching? In light of the Lord's promised return to judge the living and the dead, of which no one knows the day or hour of his return, We must all stay awake. We must stay alert. We must remain busy doing the Lord's work while we have our breath. And as we wait, and as we work, we do so with confidence and comfort. We can rest assured as God's beloved children, as God's elect, that those who belong to him will endure to the end and never be finally lost. Brothers and sisters, we learned from Mark 13 last week that until he returns or until he calls us home, we stand in the power and love of Jesus Christ and we stay awake for him. This morning we turn down to Mark chapter 14 which will take place just a few days prior to Jesus' history-making death on the cross. That means we're not only in the final stretch of our study in the Gospel of Mark, but we're also staring at the final events that would occur in the final days of his earthly life before he would be crucified. Our passage this morning covers verses 1 to 11, and it'll set the stage for the beginning of the darkest hours Jesus would ever ever face in his life. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Please follow with me. 
It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Verse 1 sets the stage for the setting of the next day in Jesus' life found within his final week on earth. Mark tells us there in verse 1, look with me in verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I will look more at this historically significant feast more in next week's sermon, Lord willing. But for now, we know that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are both connected to the same annual Jewish feast. Uh, the Passover, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, commenced the week-long Feast of the Unleavened Bread, commemorating the hasty departure of the Israelites from Egypt when there was no time to allow the dough to rise. Uh, you can read Exodus chapter 12 more this week as we prepare for next week's sermon on that topic. The reference to the Passover as two days before some of your translations might even say after two days or two days away. It means that we're in Wednesday of this week. And we know that because Mark will later tell us in Mark 15, verse 42, that the crucifixion will occur on the day before the Sabbath. Uh, the Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday, so Jesus was crucified on Friday. And the Last Supper, which we'll be studying next week, it happened the night before the crucifixion, which was Thursday. When Jews counted days, sometimes they referred to a day where a part of a time period is rounded up to count as a whole time period. So for any small part of a day, it's reckoned to be an entire 24-hour day. Therefore, the reference to two days before the Passover puts us on Wednesday of Christ's Passion Week. But why is that significant? What is it so significant about the gospel writer bringing this unique and very specific timestamp on Christ's Passion Week? 
How does knowing that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is approaching, how does that have anything to do with Jesus' ordained path to the cross? Well, among the most significant things, we'll study more about this next week, of course, that the Passover lamb under the Old Covenant was also foreshadowing an infinitely greater fulfillment of the Lamb of God under the New Covenant. But before we see this typological fulfillment in Christ next week, we should understand that with this particular feast approaching, that also meant that there were massive crowds in Jerusalem. There were hustling and bustling, thousands upon thousands coming to the city for the annual feast, the Jewish Passover, which also meant the religious leaders that ran the temple would be front and center watching Jesus' every move. Look again with me at Mark 14, verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Here we're faced with these same religious leaders of the Jewish Sanhedrin that we've encountered multiple times in just the last several chapters. The chief priest and the scribes. And once again, we see them on a hunt. We see them on the prowl. We see them putting a target on Jesus's back. But this time they have reached a boiling point. What began in their hearts a long time ago as a slow simmering irritation and annoyance towards Jesus has now climaxed to an all-time high of hatred towards Jesus. You see, they don't want Jesus to simply stop teaching. You know, go find a pulpit somewhere else. They don't want Jesus to simply stop healing people. They didn't want Jesus to simply leave town and just leave us alone. No, they want Jesus dead. They want him removed from the temple. They want him kicked out of Jerusalem. But more than those, they want him removed from existing on the earth anymore. They hate him. Mark tells us they wanted to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Cold-blooded murder. Well, friends, in one sense, that shouldn't surprise us, right? We've been studying the gospel of Mark almost two years now. We've been around the 40th sermon now in Mark, and we've been studying about these guys for quite some time. The chief priests and the scribes combined with the rest of their cronies, their bully friends of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, etc. Friends, we've been seeing this hatred get hotter and hotter as every month has gone by. Uh, Just to refresh us, especially if you weren't here two years ago, or even a year ago for that matter, I want you to hold your place in Mark 14, and I'm going to march us through this hatred progression and how we're seeing it climax in Mark 14. So hold your place in Mark 14. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We're going to be flipping probably for the next three to five minutes. I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, follow along. 
Mark 2. Look with me at verses 5 to 7. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. The word literally means debating and disputing in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Turn over to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. Mark 3 verses 1 to 6. And again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Look over with me in Mark 3, verses 22 to 30. Mark 3, starting in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Look over to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Look with me in Mark 7, verses 1 to 8. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Look over at Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. Look at verses 11 to 13. Mark 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, look with me at verses 1 to 9. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now take everything we just heard, friends, that we just heard, just a sampling of Mark's gospel, not even Matthew or Luke's or John's. Take everything you have just heard about Jesus' opponents with their disdain and displeasure towards Jesus. Put their words, their attitudes, their actions all in a gun, and you have the perfect recipe for a heartless death kill. Their ammo is filled, did you notice the words there? With anger and heat and hatred and hardness of heart and hostility. Combine that with jealousy, religious pride, narcissism, hypocrisy, traditions of men that undermine the word of God, cold-heartedness, and growing suspicion. It's as if Mark has been tracking with us for the last 14 chapters. They are packing in the gunpowder, and behold, satanic forces of evil are being aimed at Jesus, the king of love. And now with that backdrop in mind, listen afresh to what we've been staring about at Jesus as he's entered into Jerusalem. Specifically, keep all these verses now on the back of your mind and now read Mark chapters 11 and 12, what we've been covering the last few months. Turn over to Mark 11. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the Passover is before them, hordes of people are there, and Jesus is on a mission. His face has been set to Jerusalem, and he's there to accomplish redemption. But listen to what Jesus says as he entered the temple, Mark 11, 17 to 18. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In other words, Jesus said, you have made the temple, the place of worship, into a cave of thugs, hiding out in God's house, but living hypocritical lives. But notice verse 18. Was Jesus warmly received after such a bold statement? Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now go turn over to Mark 12. Mark 12. Thank you for your patience. Hope no one's getting a paper cut. If you're a swiper, maybe tendonitis. I don't know. 
Mark 12, verse 12. Look at Mark 12, verse 12. This is at the conclusion of the parable of the attendants. Mark 12, 12, and they were seeking to arrest him. The word arrest doesn't mean put handcuffs behind your back. It means to grab by force. They want to physically take hold of him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Friends, who are the they in that verse that want to physically grab Jesus and destroy him? Friends, it's the same people we've been talking about from Mark chapter 2 all the way to Mark, really around Mark 12, that we're seeing again in Mark 14. Friends, it's the chief priest. It's the scribes. It's the leaders of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Friends, it's the opponents that have been against Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. And lastly, Jesus says, I know what you're doing, and so I'm going to warn the crowds about you. Notice what Jesus said about them. Mark 12, drop down to the very end, verses 38 to 40. Mark 12, 38 to 40. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Friends, these men were religious hucksters. They were religious scam artists. They called Jesus Christ a blasphemer. It was to indict a man of dishonoring Yahweh in the highest degree and worthy of capital punishment. These men called Jesus satanic, demonic. They said his whole ministry was being done in the power of the darkness of hell. These men repeatedly, did you notice the refrain? Tested him, tempt him. They're suspicious of him. They're trying to find loopholes in their interpretation of Scripture in order to make him look like a heretic and a fraud. These men, friends, did not want good for Jesus. They tried to trip Jesus up. They tried to set Jesus up. These men tried to hurl as a professional tennis player would every possible lie, half-truth. Rumor, gossip, taking him out of context in order to undermine his ministry, in order to defame his reputation. Brothers and sisters, I think it's just good for us to be reminded, if you follow Jesus, we will too. If they hated Jesus, took him out of context, slandered him, we're suspicious of him. What do you think they will do to those who try to represent him? Friends, from the very beginning of the first disciples to Christians today, faithful Christians and faithful pastors will be opposed by forces of evil. You will be taken out of context. You'll be called an imposter. You will be dishonored, slandered, and treated like you are a fraud. Jesus warned us, if you follow me and you love me, 
the world will hate you and even those in religious garb who parade around they might be your biggest opponents. And I can tell you, friends, just from experience, I worked in business for 10 years. I faced all sorts of opposition from ungodly businessmen. I mean, I even had one guy want to fight me in the parking lot. Yes, that really happened because I fired him. <laughs> but I have never in my life faced as much fierce opposition, not from people outside the church, but from inside. And as one brother told me, when some difficult things were going on about three years ago. He said, Brother Blake, we've got the same theology, man. We know the local church is God's plan A to reach the nations. Satan, yes, he's on the mission field. Satan, yes, could be at the, you know, laundromat and lawyers, and he does work all his problems in all those places. But friends, Satan knows the primary place where disciples are made and the church and gospel goes forward, and it's the local church. Where do you think he's going to do the most damage? Friends, pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for your pastors. The battle can be fierce, but the victory is won. Friends, these men never loved Jesus. They couldn't stand him. His very presence when he entered a room made hair stand up on their back. These men brewed with anger. But you know what's interesting about these men? They were cowards. They were afraid. Did you notice what was said about them in Mark 14, verses 1 and 2? Look with me. They sought our ways by stealth to seize him. That word there means by craft, deceit, guile, trickery, deception. This is what we might call secret meetings behind closed doors. They want to accomplish an evil plan, but without anyone knowing about it. Uh, these men fantasized and discussed ways how they could take Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Son of Man, Jesus the Son of God, and put him to death. But they were cowards. They feared men. They loved the praise of men more than the praise that comes from God. And, and they didn't want to displease the crowds that were flocking around Jesus because if they were found out, for what they really were, no one would follow them. That's why in verse 2, they decide not to make any hasty moves towards attacking him. They realize with all these people flocking in for the Jewish Passover, it could cause a mad riot, a disturbance of peace. So for the time being, they refrained from action. But their hearts grew harder towards Jesus. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that Mark gives us what appears to be a flashback to a different scene for several verses before he continues his train of thought. In verses 3 to 9, Mark records a story for us that is found in Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13, and also John 12, verses 1 to 8. Uh, Why you're probably sitting there going, a flashback, what, what, what do you mean? Well, in John's gospel... Specifically, John chapter 12, verse 1, we're told that the next scene actually takes place six days before the Jewish Passover, which would technically be the previous Friday or Saturday weekend. So again, Matthew, Mark 14, verses 1 and 2 takes place on Wednesday. Just keeping track with me on the calendar there. And that means the next scene that Mark is going to teach us is a flashback. It's taking us back 
six days before Passover, which would have been the previous Friday or Saturday. So in Mark 14.3, Mark frames, just to give you kind of a technical way sometimes the Gospels are laid out, it's, it's written like a sandwich. It's a literary device to capture for us a beginning and a bookend section with something in the middle that will contrast or make those other bookends stand out. And so what we're about to see is the sandwich inside. So verses 1 and 2, there's a theme going on, and then we're going to pick it back up in verses 10 and 11 at the end of the sermon. But in the middle, Mark's trying to convey something, something that happened a few days earlier, but sandwiched in between some really dark stuff. So what happens in verses 3 to 9? In this section, Jesus has said, if you notice there in verse 3, he has been invited, it, appear, it appears, to a man's house named Simon. Uh, Simon was a very common Jewish man's name. Uh, but this man, uh, he's not given the typical kind way of saying it. You know, Simon, son of John, or Simon, son of whatever daddy. Uh, he actually gets a different name tag. He's called Simon the leper. That's not exactly what you want on your name tag on your first day of school, kids. Simon the Le- you just don't want that. Simon the headache, you know, Simon the flu. No, the the leper wasn't his last name. Leprosy was that dreadful skin disease that would have ostracized and quarantined you from the broader society until a priest would deem you clean. But apparently by the time Jesus shows up in this house where Simon lives, he must be healed already. And we can assume that because there's other people in the house. If you send out a birthday invitation or a a Google invite to come to the party, but you knew that someone had leprosy, guess what? Nobody coming. They're going to hit no, or maybe not now, or I'm not going to respond. I don't want to be rude. But apparently there's plenty of people there, and he's healed. Uh, People would have remained their social distancing, as we are familiar with that term more, until he was deemed clean. But we're not told when he was healed of the leprosy. It could have been that weekend when Jesus shows up. Jesus healed lepers. Luke 17, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 7, I believe. Maybe not Luke 7, but Luke 17. Either way, whether it was a long time ago or recently, Jesus is in the house. Simon, the former leper, but still known as a leper, is there. And he's having Jesus over for dinner. Hanging out. The spiritual gift of just kicking it. But then in the midst of the upcoming week of hostility, remember Mark 14? It is a rough road he's about to go on. There's this brief window, the previous weekend, where we see another person show up to Simon's party, to Simon's hangout. Mark tells us it's a woman. She's alone. At least it appears so far. She has a very expensive gift in her hand. It's an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. It was an oil probably from the root of some kind of import from India and was worth quite a bit of money. There in verse 3 in the ESV, some of your translations will say the same thing. Mark says it was very costly. In other words, it was very expensive what she brought to the house, emphasizing really the value of the contents in that flask meant a lot to her. In verse 5, we're told that the value of the flask of oil would have been equivalent to about one year's salary 
for a common laborer. In other words, this isn't exactly, you know, the clearance rack at Walgreens for body spray. Uh, This is more expensive than probably most, if not all, the women in here's engagement ring. Some of you might say, well, it didn't really require very much, brother, on my end. But but you take the biggest rock on a woman's finger, we're talking what she brings in here is a year's salary's worth of perfume or ointment. But who is this woman? And what does she decide to do when she shows up to this afternoon luncheon with this very expensive alabaster flask of pure nard? You know what's interesting? Mark, he doesn't give us the name. He simply says, a woman came. Presumably, she was known by Simon. Perhaps he invited her over to the meal and fellowship. I don't think she invited herself over or bust the door down, per se. And presumably she knew who Jesus was. And she knew him well enough to know that he would be at Simon's house that weekend. It's almost as if this woman knew with the Passover week coming. She knew Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem. She knew exactly where Jesus would be, what he would be doing, and who he would be with. It's almost as if she's anticipating why Jesus came to Jerusalem. Interestingly, John's gospel tells us exactly who it is. Listen to John 12, verses 1 to 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Friends, this is Mary, not the mother of Jesus, but Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. And you know what John 11 verse 5 says? Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha very much. Mary did not just know Jesus by name. They were on a first-name basis. In fact, Jesus performed one of his most amazing and memorable miracles when he raised Lazarus, her brother, from the dead. And here is Mary approaching Jesus and giving to him, listen, what was most valuable and most precious to him. She takes an expensive, precious ointment, probably, most likely, a a family heirloom, or at the very least, something that would have been a financial security for her future. She doesn't merely pour out the oil like we would graciously pouring tea into someone's glass. No, she breaks the flask right there in the house. And look with me in Mark 14, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Whose head? Jesus' head. At first, those who are gathered in the room are taken back. There's a gasp. They're so speechless, but it's not one of amazement. In fact, it's not a speechlessness of, I'm impressed. 
It's actually the opposite. They are angry and deeply disappointed by Mary's decision to break this expensive flask and literally pour out every last drop on Jesus' head. And John even says it dripped all the way down to his feet. Now look with me in Mark 14, verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, that just means seething with anger, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now we've got another question to answer. Who are these people in the house that are seething mad at Mary? Why are they so harsh? Why are they so critical towards this woman? Well, in Mark's gospel, we're simply not told who they are either. He described Mary as a woman, and we're even given more ambiguity. It just says there were some who said. Interestingly, though, as you study the gospels, they're writing from different perspectives at different times. They're going to have different details and clues that don't contradict each other, but complement one another. If you read Matthew 26 and John 12 together, we're given two identifiers of who the sum consisted of. Matthew 26, verse 8 says, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? And then John 12, verses 4 to 6, gets even more specific. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Friends, you would think that these harsh and critical words towards Mary would have come from the Pharisees, would have come from the Sadducees, would have come from the Herodians, would have come from the chief priest, would have come from the scribes. Friends, that would have been par for the course. Those men were known as being rough and rigid critics their entire ministry. But instead, the gospel writers inform us that this harsh criticism came from the disciples of Jesus. Judas Iscariot leading out the naysaying, leading out in the social media dogpile, leading out in the email complaint vomit brigade. And it appears that the other 11 disciples were influenced by Judas's cynical pessimism. In other words, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. One sour attitude can ruin an entire body. Friends, could you imagine how humiliating this scene was? Here's one woman standing before 12 men. One woman standing before 12 men who were angry and seething in their teeth and deeply disappointed with what she did with God's resources. Friends, these men, not just Judas, all of them, 
joined in the criticism brigade. Friends, echo chambers are a terrible place for harsh critics to sound convincing. You get people together that already have the same agitated, irritated criticism of talk, whatever, you get them together in an echo chamber, guess what you have? A mess. A critical spirit. It feeds on each other. Friends, just a good word of exhortation. Be careful of surrounding yourself with chronically critical people. Be careful of surrounding yourself with people who are chronically critical. They're rigid in their criticism. They are quick to criticize and slow to encourage. Friends, as Christians, we need to be the opposite. Quick to encourage and slow to criticize. There is a place for criticism. There is a place for constructive criticism. There is a place where God uses criticism for our good. But friends, if criticism is all we're dishing out in our marriage, it's all we're dishing out in our parenting, it's all we're dishing out in our church, well, our church will dwindle down to nothing. Our marriages will dwindle down to nothing. Our kids will dwindle down to nothing. Our spouses will dwindle down to nothing. Friends, with every one or two criticisms you give, double your encouragement. Encouragement breathes life into people's lives. Mary here takes on that harsh criticism and she takes it on the chin. And yet she pours out to the last drop what meant most to her for the one who meant most to her. But the disciples, they didn't see it that way. Friends, these men who had heard his teaching, they had seen his miracles, they had seen his love for lepers and the outcasts and Gentiles and children and women, it's almost like have one of those moments where they just forgot it all. They forgot how good God had been to them, how gracious God had been to them. And out of all the critics that could have lamb-blasted Mary that day, the one who led the charge would eventually betray Christ. These men got together, influenced negatively by a full-blown hypocrite to let Mary have it, to let Mary know what was on her, their mind, to give Mary their forthright, concerned, and critical feedback. Friends, these were not no-name outsiders. These were the men closest to Jesus. They were in Jesus' inner circle. They were in Jesus' tight, small group. They were in Jesus' mini leadership team. They were known as the 12. And they, of all people, were the most critical and harsh towards Mary. It says in verse 5, they scalded her. It means to murmur against, to demean someone. In other words, their criticism wasn't just a minor disagreement. They put her down. They spoke down to her. They belittled her. They squashed what she just did and said it was a waste. And Judas, it appears, is the most vocal. But he's trying to sound real spiritual at first. Friends, don't be duped by people who talk a lot about the Bible and spiritual things. See if their actions match their words. 
like someone standing up in a business meeting at a Southern Baptist church. Hey, that money could have been used to feed the poor. Don't you care about poor people, Mary? People are starving and dying. You wasted God's resources. In fact, you had no business of all people wasting that expensive flask on Jesus. In essence, they were saying to Mary, you're a fool. You're an undiscerning woman. You are unloving and uncaring to the poor in Jerusalem. Mary, you need to take the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University course. You don't know how to spend money. All you know how to do is waste it. At first, I'm sure inside all of us, we would have thought the same thing. That's a year's salary. All over Jesus and the floor. And man, this house is strongly smelling like perfume. I'm sure we all would have said or thought the same thing. Are you crazy? There's other practical ways to minister to the community, Mary. Are you not spiritual? But critics don't always have the last say, do they? Critics might be loud and vocal in your life. Complaints and criticisms might come from every conceivable angle. But critics' words are never the last and most important word. Jesus's is. Look at me at verses 6 to 9. But Jesus said, oh man, couldn't you just almost sense the room get dense? Jesus speaks up with some passion. Look what he says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? In other words, quit it with your criticism. Leave her alone. Let her serve me out of the overflow of her heart. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. In Greek, for those like 5% of you that really care about this, it's in the emphatic. The way the sentence reads is, me you won't always have. Me you won't always have. Me you won't always have. In other words, he's going, Mary saw something in that house that day that the disciples totally missed. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand. Notice what Jesus says, for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Oh, friends, there is a wonderful and dynamite lesson to encourage us when we are harshly criticized in our obedience to Jesus. What these disciples of Jesus criticized, listen, Jesus actually commended what they saw as a wasteful, ugly display of foolishness. Jesus said, she has done something beautiful for me. Oh, friends, what they saw as a waste was weighty on the scales of God when it comes to doing what pleases the Lord. Beloved, what was lost that day were what these men missed. They missed true beauty from God's perspective, true godliness, true love, true sacrifice, true Christianity. What was lost that day was not a loss of money that could have been better used for the poor. No, the poor would always be with you, Jesus says, but you won't always have me. Mary got something that these 12 
should have gotten a long time ago. Mary knew that Jesus' time was drawing near to die. But because she saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead, she knew he would not stay dead. She knew she could pour out the most expensive and precious gift to herself because the one she loved the most was about to pour out his whole life for her on the cross. Friends, that's love. That's true Christianity. That's not fake and fluffy stuff. When you pour out all you got, lay it on the line in love for others, it is showing the world that there is a greater love that has penetrated your heart. We love, 1 John says, because he first loved us. Mary, who was not a part of the 12, who was not a man who showed up in that house a week before he would be crucified, got something these 12 men totally missed. And friends, Jesus, when he makes a promise, it comes true. Did you notice what Jesus said there in Mark 14, verse Nine, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Friends, that came true. You might say, really, Blake? We just read it. We're studying the gospel of Mark, the gospel of John, the gospel of Matthew. They captured it. The spirit of the living God said, remember what Mary did. Oh, friends, people might criticize you to your belittle down to the dirt, but Jesus has never overlooked anything done in his name. There is a book written with the Lamb's book of life where the names of the elect and all they've ever done in faith to Jesus. That day is coming and he will not forget. Oh, friends, last time I checked, my name is not tagged on in Mark 14. People probably aren't going to remember me 2,000 years from now, but boy, they, we remember Mary. There's something to think about there. What the world and even religious people will criticize, Jesus has a different value system often than we do. Friends, we need to conclude. You might say, well, Blake, we haven't had any points. No subpoints. Ah, we're not done yet. But you can take a deep breath. I've saved a lot of good stuff for next week's sermon because there's a lot there. But I think there's three questions we can answer from this text. You're saying, Blake, what about 10 and 11? No, we're getting there. Number one, question number one. What have we learned about the hardening effect of sin? What have we learned about the hardening effect of sin in our passage this morning? Okay, number two. What have we learned about the dark side of false conversion? What have we learned about the dark side of false conversion? Number three. What have we learned about God's transforming grace in salvation? What have we learned about God's transforming grace in salvation? Let's do that first one. What have we learned about the hardening effect of sin? Friends, the chief priests and the scribes repeatedly are called by Jesus as men with hardened hearts. Do you know what a hardened heart is? It doesn't mean cardiac arrest. It's a metaphor in the New Testament, and really the Old too. It speaks of having a heart that no longer responds to God's word in repentance and faith. In other words, the, the wire's being plugged into the wall and there's no electricity. It's dead. 
it doesn't respond to spiritual truth anymore. Friends, sin is like leaving a cup of water outside overnight in the chilling weather of winter. If we don't bring it back in after several hours, what will that cup of water do? It will what? It'll freeze. And the same goes with sin in our hearts. If we don't address, if we don't confess, if we don't own up to, if we don't recognize, if we don't admit, and we don't fight sin in our lives, if we don't bring it to Jesus, if we don't preach the gospel to ourselves, if we don't open up ourselves to correction and rebuke and church discipline and shepherding care, friends, our hearts can grow very hard. They can grow callous to the things of God to the point it does nothing for you. Friends, when God brings a specific sin to our minds, we need to deal with it quick, fast, and in a hurry. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. Lust. Theft, hatred, bitterness, fear of man, laziness, adultery, coveting, jealousy, fits of anger, wickedness, deceit, lying, gossip, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, or unbelief. Friends, if God has been bringing any of these sins to your mind and my mind lately, don't ignore it. If it bothers you, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is a sorrowing, a worldly sorrow that leads to death and regret, but there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance unto salvation. Friends, that's why we need the body of Christ like a bonfire out in the middle of winter. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, this is a good one, 12 and 13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, not just on the Lord's day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, we need the Lord's day, but we need every day. We need encouragement. We need correction. We need teaching. We need accountability. We need oversight because from the pastor to the deacon to the elder board to the congregation, all of us, if we're left outside in the frozen tundra of our sin, if we're not brought back to the bonfire of the gospel and the people of God, our hearts can grow hard. Friends, people who drift from the Lord do not drift in one night. They drift over many nights and never dealing with their sin. Sin is when we listen to our hearts while ignoring the word of God. Sin is when we listen to our hearts while ignoring the word of God. Brothers and sisters, I've been chewing on this for a few days. 
just a meditation for my own soul. God will not allow any of his precious children to be at peace with any known sin in their life. Sin's a big deal to God. And so it should be a big deal to his kids. Friends, let's make this our prayer. God, make me sensitive to the sin in my life and melt any part of my life that has grown cold and hardened towards you. Question number two. What have we learned about the dark side of false conversion? Look with me now at Mark 14, verses 10 and 11. Mark 14, starting in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who is he? Mark tells us, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Friends, again, Judas was not an outsider. He was an insider. He was in the know. He was one of the twelve. And he had the ominous dog tag next to his name throughout the New Testament. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. You know what that means? Judas is the exemplar. He is the chief example of what a false convert looks like. Someone who outwardly professes to be a Christian. Someone who outwardly even reads their Bible. Someone who outwardly hangs out with church people. But inwardly, they don't love Jesus. Friends, close proximity to Jesus does not equate to knowing and loving Jesus. Being an almost Christian is not the same as actually being one. There is no such thing as vicarious Christianity. You nor I can ride on the coattails of someone else's faith. We must choose for ourselves whether we will love and trust Jesus or not. Author Donald Whitney says this, Proximity to or preference for godly people will not make a difference at the judgment. The gates of heaven admit only one at a time. Students, kids, it is a tremendous blessing if your mom and dad bring you to church and teach you the scriptures. It is good to learn from your parents. But you must choose whether or not to follow Jesus with your own life. You must make your faith your own. No one gets into heaven riding on the coattails of another Christian. Today, the scriptures tell us, is the day of salvation. Don't put off to tomorrow what King Jesus says, come to me today. Let me take on your sin. I died in your place. I rose from the dead. I've conquered the grave. Come and I will make you clean. Turn from your sins, kids. Students, wake up to the reality of eternal life and eternal damnation. Christ extends his offer to you. In his book, Am I Really a Christian? Mike McKinley lays out in his table of contents seven pithy statements. If these kind of jar you a little bit, Maybe you want to look into reading it. Am I Really a Christian? by Mike McKinley. Notice what the table of contents are. You are not a Christian just because you say you are. You are not a Christian if you haven't been born again. You are not a Christian just because you like Jesus. You are not a Christian if you enjoy sin. 
You are not a Christian if you do not endure to the end. You are not a Christian if you don't love other people. You are not a Christian if you love your stuff. In the last chapter, he brings out really what was known for Judas. Why did Judas betray Jesus? We'll look more into that next week, but at least here we see some reason he loved money. Notice what Mike McKinley says in his book, quote, Wealth is like anesthesia. It can be a great thing, but it can also be dangerous. If you have a life-threatening wound, you don't want to be numbed on anesthesia that you don't recognize the danger. Anesthesia does not fix your problems. It does not heal your wounds. It just makes you less aware of the problems that you have. All your wealth is dangerous because it has the power to numb you to your need for God. It has the power to draw your love away from God and deceive you into thinking it can satisfy and save you. The Apostle Paul concludes bluntly, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Apparently that was true for Judas. Question number three. What have we learned about God's transforming grace in salvation? If you and I are asked the question, am I really a Christian? How would you answer it? How do you know? The answer cannot be found in things like this. Well, do I like doing ministry activities at church? Do I feel good when I do kind things for others? Do I like being around Christian people? Did I grow up in a Christian family? Am I friends with a pastor? Have I repeated the sinner's prayer? Have I been baptized? Do I get warm fuzzies every time my favorite Christian song is sung? No, the question gets boiled down to this, my friends. Do you and I see our dire need for Jesus? Do you and I know Jesus as our dearest friend, our mighty Savior, our strong, kind, and faithful King? Do you love Jesus? That is the question. That has always been the question. Who do you say that I am, and do you love me? Friends, we are either growing in deeper love for him or we are growing in deeper hatred towards him. There are no neutral grounds with Jesus. For Mary, the money and future security that that flask would have provided for her, it wasn't an idol in her life. Christ was most precious to her. She cherished Christ over comfort. For Mary, the fear of man or the praise of men wasn't an idol in her life. She was severely criticized and humiliated. Yet Christ's commendation of her is what mattered the most to her. She was sacrificial and faithful. She loved Christ because she knew that Christ first loved her. Thomas Manton once said, love is like an echo. It returneth what it receiveth. And for Mary, self-righteousness and religious pride was not an idol in her life. Christ's sufferings, his imminent death, his promised resurrection was her hope and confidence in covering her sin. Friends, is that your confidence? Is Jesus Christ, his perfect life that we fail to live, his substitutionary death on the cross that we deserved, his rising from the dead, a death that we will one day face, his Ascension to the right hand of the Father as he presented himself as a perfect sacrifice to his Father and his call for all of us to turn from our sins, to trust in him before it's too late. Is that your hope? 
Friends, if Jesus says, why should I let you in? If we bring anything to the table, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone. It's his blood shed on Calvary that makes us white as snow. The only boast we have in this life is Jesus has died for my sins and he has risen from the dead that I might have hope and hope eternal. Friends, that is the boast of a real, true Christian. That's not radical Christians. That's New Testament biblical Christianity. We have no boast, but our boast is ultimately only in the Lord. That's what Mary's doing here. Mark is showing Christians, do you want to know what it means to be unashamed of the gospel? Look at Mary. She poured out what was most precious to her for the one who was most precious to her. Judas, he embodies what it means to be ashamed of Christ. He sold Jesus, we will find, for 30 pieces of silver and pats on the back from the religious community. Mary's sin made her come boldly and humbly to Jesus. Judas's sin only hardened his heart against Jesus. Mary's actions spoke for themselves, love and sacrifice for the one who did that for her. Judas's actions spoke for themselves. He was on the inner circle with Jesus, and yet he was being led by Satan. All along. That's the dark side of false conversions. That's why it's very important to join a local church that cares about your soul more than your bank account, cares about your godliness more than how well-respected you are in the community. We need to help each other get to heaven because sin is real. Spiritual warfare is fierce. And Jesus rose from the dead, and he will take us home. Charles Spurgeon once said, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. Friends, we should examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. We should test ourselves in accordance with Scripture. Do we know the Lord? Friends, a good question to ask ourselves is as you've been attending church here or anywhere, as you hear the preaching of the gospel each week, does your heart melt like wax and lead you to ongoing repentance and faith in Jesus? Or does your heart harden like clay and harden you further in sin? Let's pray. in your kindness, in your great love that Christ poured out his life for us so that whatever sacrifice we pour out for him will never match that. Lord, we do know that your word says that your patience, your forbearance, and your kindness leads us to repentance. Father, we pray that we would be challenged and encouraged by the example we see in Mary. Lord, we pray that when we are bearing up criticism even from people who we know as believers or professing believers. Lord, at the end of the day, it's your final word that most matters. Lord, we praise you that in the gospel of your Son, we have hope, 
we have life and you will transform us into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.